All right, everybody. So today we have Dr. Jeremy Lenicky on the show. How are you doing, man? Doing well. Thanks for having me. So I had heard your name, you know, plenty of times over the last year or so that I've done this. And then recently what kind of had me want to get you on was talking with Dr. Scott Stevenson. I don't know if you're familiar with him, um, but he had talked about blood flow restriction training. And he's like, you know, Dr. Jeremy Lenicky is kind of the guy to talk to about that. And that is a topic that, you know, has been around for a few years now, at least more prevalent in the space. And it's always been interesting to me. So I definitely want to dive into that as well as some other topics. Um, but before I do, for anybody who isn't familiar with you, could you just give a little background and you know how you got in this space yourself? Yeah, sure. Um, right now, I'm, I'm going into my seventh year uh, as a professor at the University of Mississippi. So I just uh, got promoted to associate professor this, I guess, earlier this month. Nice. So uh, thank you. Before that, I did my PhD at Oklahoma, uh, and before that, uh, my master's and undergrad at Southeast Missouri State University. So I have kind of an exercise science background. Um, PhD was in exercise physiology, um, but how I came across blood flow restriction was my internship during my undergraduate, which is where I did it. I, I did that at the University of Illinois, um, and that's where I came across Lane Norton and a couple mm -hmm. other people where we started kind of talking about uh, a lot of these ideas, they were already kind of experimenting with it. And I just started really kind of focus in on the research. That was probably about 2007, 2008. Um, so, but you're, you're, you're definitely right that it's gotten a lot more popular in the past few years. But my background before that, I, I've always been uh, involved in sports. Uh, my, my, my main sport was wrestling. I did that from probably at the age of five up and through high school. I, I was not, I was, I was, I was not good enough to wrestle in college. Um, okay. so, but I like that sport. I, I did some bodybuilding, um, in college, um, through my masters. Um, you know, I, I really, I, I really like that sport. Um, I, I like the, the physical and mental aspect of that. Uh, but again, very mediocre, uh, for yeah. sure. Um, and then did a little bit of powerlifting, more of the same. Um, my, my deadlifts, not, not too bad, but my other two lifts are not so good. Uh, deadlift? so in the gym, I've deadlifted in competition. I think I've deadlifted probably, uh, not very much, probably 545. Okay. Uh, in the, in the gym, I've lifted over 600, but nice. you know, depending on who you talk to, that stuff doesn't count in the gym. <laughs> uh, we'll count it. but when you, when you're relative to, you know, some of the people that you've had on here are people that, you know, we, we've all, we all know it's like, yeah. that's, that's not very strong. Right. Um, but you know, you that, seem, that's how tall my, are you, by the way, you seem like a tall guy. Yeah. About six, one, six, two. Okay. Yeah. I mean, not, I'm like also six, one and deadlift, not surprisingly, was kind of my best lift. My arm span is like six, four. Yeah. So at one point I was doing like 500 pound deadlifts and I don't even think I could squat 315 at that point. Like it's just the, the ratio there was definitely pretty off. <laughs> Yeah, likewise. So I've, I've always had kind of a um, kind of a fondness for sports. Um, and then I kind of got into uh, bodybuilding as an offshoot from wrestling because wrestling, my technique was always was was always pretty good. But my coaches were like, you need to be uh, seen about trying to get a little bit stronger. Mm -hmm. um, so that's where I kind of got into resistance training. And, and, and that's how I started on that route. Um, and then once I realized that, you know, my first kind of 
thought was I want to work with athletes. I don't know. I think that's a lot of people who go into exercise science. Sure. Um, and I, I really thought that that's what I wanted to do. And, and, you know, I always use this story when I'm talking to students who are, you know, coming into our program. It's like, don't, don't be afraid to be very flexible and, and kind of change when, when you feel like you need to. Yeah. Because I was, I was, I was dead set on that. And there wasn't a lot that people could tell me, you know, it's like, you know, you, people giving me the same speech that I give and I'm like, I don't want to hear this guy. Right, right. Uh, I know for sure that I'm going to work with athletes. And then I started doing that um, throughout my undergraduate and a practicum program. And I realized very quickly that, yeah, this this ain't for me. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not a I don't really this wasn't what I thought it was going to be, yeah. um, which is often very much the case with most things. Yeah. Right. Um, and then I transitioned kind of, you know, tried a couple other things, and ended up in kind of the research world. I, I started off with animal research in Illinois. Um, and that brought me a little bit closer to what I wanted to do, but I was like, man, this is dealing with these animals and these tissues and that's not something I want to do either. Mm. Uh, so, um, I knew I got closer to research, but I knew that's not the research that I wanted to do. So then I transitioned right. to, you know, human research and blood flow restriction. So, right. um, that's really where I, how I ended up, um, studying blood flow restriction. Interesting. Yeah, I didn't know that level of background. So it's funny. I also wrestled and that's kind of like my thing up until high school. Um, definitely had no interest in doing that in college. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then I had planned on going to med school. But again, like, you know, as far as things not always being like they seem, just the more and more medical doctors I talked to just like seemed to hate it. And they were just like, it's all this insurance nonsense and loss of autonomy. And I talked to all these dentists and they're working like 35 hours a week doing very well. And I was like, this seems this seems like a good idea. <laughs> and uh, I also studied exercise science as an undergrad. And um, so I worked under, you probably know Dr. Nicholas Radimus. Yeah. So um, I worked under him, you know, did very little research, uh, but at least enough to kind of, you know, get my foot in there. And I really never even thought about like it was never even presented to me as like to continue on doing research. I think at that point I was so set on like either med school or dental school. Um, looking back, I might have even considered physical therapy. It just wasn't, I don't know, it just wasn't on my radar at all. And, you know, I'm happy with my choice, but it's interesting. I think the tides have kind of changed in the last 10 years where I think because of the fitness space, to some degree, people are seeing that like, oh, like a PhD in exercise science and things like that can actually lead to a viable career um, that it just wasn't talked about, I think, as much, you know, maybe 10, 15 years ago. Yeah, no, I, it wasn't on my radar at all, to be honest. Um, although he didn't do a PhD in exercise, uh, he did it in nutrition. The first person I really saw in, in our in our realm that that did something like that was Lane Norton. Sure. And that's yeah. back when I was. I mean, that's been a long time ago, but I remember seeing that. I'm like, well, maybe that's something I, I should try and, and think about. Uh, yeah. But it, but it, you know, as an undergrad, you're not thinking about a, a PhD. That seems like right. it's not even attainable. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's always, it is very interesting how things kind of work out. Yeah. Well, you're probably, cause Lane is 37. How old are you? Uh, shoot. let me see. 34. 34. Yeah. Okay. So I know I'm 29, so kind of right between us, but yeah, I saw Lane going with bodybuilding.com and you know, he was doing his, uh, like natural bodybuilding series and all that stuff. But I guess, again, I never really thought of it as like a career or anything. Yeah. Yeah. No. Uh, yeah. And, and Lane's definitely helped me out a lot. I met him. I knew him through the message boards. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, 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 I met him and became closer with him when I was in Illinois. Okay. Um, that's where I met a, a lot of my closest friends today, honestly. Um, mm -hmm. but 
yeah, he, he helped kind of give me like, you should speak at this, you should come and, and speak at this. So yeah. it's just, you know, people giving you some opportunities and you taking them sometimes it can, can go a long way. Sure, for sure. So getting into uh, blood flow restriction, I mean, to some degree, we'll address the basics for people who, who don't know anything about it. Um, so obviously the idea and what we're seeing in the studies is that you're able to get similar levels of muscle growth from very low load training, usually doing higher reps. Um, I believe your protocol is doing a, and I, correct me if this has changed, but last time I checked, it was like a 30 rep max, and then you have a little bit of a break, but you're still including the muscle, and then you're doing sets of 15. Uh, and the idea here being that the metabolite buildup, we think, is responsible for significant growth. Is that like a good general summary? Yeah, pretty close, yeah. Um... The, the 30, 15, 15, 15 protocol certainly is one that's very common. Um, mm -hmm. And if I was working with the general public, that's <clears throat> probably what I would have them do uh, because it kind of gives them some goal repetitions. Um, in the research, we've kind of moved towards just doing sets to failure. Okay. Uh, it's a little bit easier to try and control for, you know, different people's endurance capacities. Right. Um, but I, I doubt that they would give that much of a, of a different result. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that's that's generally the idea, and I think the the main point is is that the load needs to be very very low, um, because once you start applying it with high loads, you're not getting anything extra. You're just adding a lot of discomfort. Um, and I think the the thing that always needs to be stated, because this was always what was lost on me early on, is how can this be a good thing? <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. if if we always talk about blood flow going to the muscle being important. And now we're talking about restricting it. That, that's why the first time I read about it, I, I thought I was, I read about it when I first as an undergrad and I, I, I thought there's no way I'm reading this right. This, <laughs> this must be, I just don't understand what I'm, I'm reading. Um, but I think the, the point is, is that it's reduced. So blood flow is going into the limb. Um, it's, it's just not at the same rate. Um, and it's only for a short period of time. So if you were to restrict blood flow to your limb for hours, that would be probably very bad. Um, but we're talking about minutes, not hours. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a, an important point too. But generally, yeah, I'd agree with, definitely with what you said. Great. And you know, one of the things I had wondered about was in terms of practicality, you know, most people aren't going to have these blood pressure cuffs. So I believe you kind of just recommend wraps, right, for a lot of people. And is it something, because it seems especially if you don't have like any background in it, how to get it to the point that you still have, you know, the arterial flow and no venous flow back, you know, is there a good gauge for that? Um, there's a, a, a variable gauge for sure. We're, we're trying to work on that at the moment. Um, we've come up with a couple, um, couple different ideas. Um, the first one that I think was published by Jake Wilson, I was on that manuscript as well, was the idea of, just using a seven out of 10 um, on, a, on a perceived tightness scale. Now, the reason why that scale came about was because my, my original plan was, um, it, it works fine in the gym, but it doesn't work well in research. Um, I, I first published on, on practical wraps probably 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. And basically I was like, you know, apply the wrap to where you're not in pain at rest um, and um, you know, where you can do some amount of work, right? So it's like, well, when, when you publish it, when you try to publish as a researcher, 
you know, anybody who's a researcher would be like, what? Well, that doesn't mean like, <laughs> right. you just want to put the wraps on, but not too tight. Right. Like, um, <laughs> um, I think some of the idea was we need, we need something. So they came up, uh, Jake Wilson at the time came up with the seven out of 10 scale and that, and in that study, it seemed like those who rated it a seven out of 10, so 10's maximal discomfort, that that allowed most people to have blood flow, right? Okay. So they wouldn't be under complete arterial occlusion. Now, we've recently suggested that that's probably not the best scale to use. Um, as you might imagine, if I asked you to rate which the seven out of your maximal discomfort, that might vary widely. Sure. between individuals so we've found that so some people might rate it as you know when we when we apply it in the research study and we apply it as a percentage of the pressure needed to completely cut off blood flow that way we know that there's always flow coming in so when we use expensive equipment we'll cut off your blood flow and then take a percentage of that right so let's just say it's 100 millimeters of mercury we'll apply let's say 40 millimeters of mercury so that's 40 percent right now what we found is, is that when you use a seven out of 10 scale, sometimes people will rate that as 10% AOP or they'll rate it as a hundred percent AOP mm. or even, or even above that. So it kind of makes it to where, um, uh, in that study, they didn't have anybody over AOP, but we've used a much larger sample size and we find that it's quite variable. Yeah. The other thing that's troublesome, um, is that it's also really variable from day to day. So maybe seven out of 10 for you today is 40% arterial occlusion pressure, but tomorrow it might be 120%. Right. So it's like that we're applying it, we're applying two different stimuli. So we've kind of cautioned against maybe using that scale as the, as the, as the big one. So I probably wouldn't recommend that. Um, one of the things that we've started doing is uh, we apply a, the wrap as a percentage of your resting length. So we use the wrap, we apply it to where it's not tight, and that's basically taking your limb circumference, and then we apply it to a percentage of that. Now, that suggests that we have some data that uh, indicates that that can reduce blood flow very similarly to that um, of very expensive equipment. Now, whether or not that's true during exercise or long-term adaptations, we don't know that answer. But at rest, that appears to be pretty good. Uh, the other idea that we've been working on is conditioning the participants. So there's some uh, settings where um, in the clinical world where if, if people are coming in for rehabilitation and they want them to do blood flow restriction, they'll try and, and almost condition them to that pressure to go, hey, this is this is what we want you to be applying it to. Um, and then when you go home, apply it to this level of tightness. So we've been working on whether or not that's even possible. Uh, so we, 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 we're not we don't really have an answer yet, but we've been working on that realm as well. So uh, those are the three options that we've been researching. Uh, mm -hmm. But pragmatically, for someone just going into the gym, what I would say is apply the wraps, kind of going back to my, my original kind of recommendation, apply the wraps to where you, know, you can see some level of, of fluid restriction, but you're not in pain before you start exercise. Now. Okay. What I would recommend is, is that you can use the workload as some index of the blood flow restriction. So in other words, if you know that you have the load set to 20 or 30% of your max and you apply blood flow restriction and in the first set you get eight reps, 
you probably know that the, the wrap is too tight. Right. Right. Or the load is too high. But if you know the load is low, then you should be getting close to 30 reps. And then in the second and third and fourth sets, you should be getting close. You're not going to get maybe 15 on the, on the second, third and fourth sets because you're going to be fatigued, but you should be getting close. So I think that can give you some idea of whether or not you're in the ballpark world of being at the appropriate pressure. And to provide some uh, context for that, because some people are always, especially bodybuilders, they want to know, but let's be as precise as possible. Sure. Uh, which is, that's great. Um, and there's obviously a lot of limitations with what I just said to being precise. But with respect to muscle growth, we found that if you apply a very low pressure, in other words, around 40%, or you apply a very high pressure, the, the adaptation at the muscle for muscle growth is going to be very, very similar. Hmm. So even if you get it a little bit off, it's probably okay. Now, th there's some indication that vascular adaptations, they might be a little bit different. They may respond better to higher pressure. But with muscle growth, I, I think you have quite a, a little bit of wiggle room there. Okay. So for the most part, I mean, there is going to be some experimentation, but it doesn't seem like it's that big of a deal if you're a little off. Yeah, not, a, not if you're a normal, healthy person. Obviously, if okay. you're having some clinical problems, um, it's probably best to know what pressure is being applied. Yeah. Um, but if you're an average gym goer um, who's, who's overall healthy, I, I don't see a problem with experimenting with the knee wraps. There, there, is, there is evidence that it, uh, that it does produce changes in muscle size, that it does produce changes in muscle strength. So that there is published research on that. Right. Um, and most of those populations are actually in trained individuals. So you mentioned, um, you know, assuming you're a healthy individual, that's actually something I wanted to ask you about, because when I was talking to Scott Stevenson about it, he had recommended against it for me. So I have a, a GI issue that increases my risk of clotting. And he said there is some evidence that it can increase clotting. So I don't know if you can speak to that at all. Um, well, I don't know that we have evidence that it does. Um, I think really? that's, okay. one of the, that's one of the things that we are always cautious about. We usually exclude people who are at risk for four clots. So mm -hmm. the way I always kind of try to frame the conversation is when I think about the safety of blood flow restriction, uh, one of the common kind of concerns is what you just said, the risk of blood clotting. The other concern is, does it increase your risk for muscle damage? Um, and some people are worried about the blood pressure response, et cetera. But from my perspective, what, what, what I'm interested in is not does it have a risk, but does it augment the risk over the same exercise without blood flow restriction? Mm -hmm. So as you know, there's always risk to blood clotting uh, for everyone. Yeah. Now there's some people who are going to be more at risk. So the question is, if we take someone and we apply blood flow restriction to them, do we increase their risk for blood clots? Do we increase their risk for muscle damage? Um, the available literature in healthy individuals suggest it doesn't seem to. Now, there's some indication in clinical populations as well that it, it doesn't seem to. However, um, I think I would agree with him that if you have, you know, uh, an elevated risk of blood clotting, and it's possible that adding blood flow restriction, whatever the whatever the possibility level is, mm -hmm. might increase that. I would I would I would probably not do it, just because there's no there's no reason to. Um, and I think the 
the way I always try to frame blood flow restriction is that this is a very useful tool, but it's not necessary to, re to, to reach maximal adaptation. You can yeah. get that with normal exercise. So uh, there may be situations where if you could use it safely, that it, maybe it's a little bit better because you might be injured or whatever, but it's not necessary. So if you're worried about that risk, I mean, yeah, I, I certainly would, would, would bypass that. So I definitely think that there, there's no evidence that it does. Really? I might have misinterpreted but, yeah. what he said. I thought that I thought that he had mentioned that there was some what's the the name, the Asian name of like what it was first talked about. Um, Katsu. Katsu. Yeah, I had thought that he had mentioned that there actually was evidence, but maybe maybe I just misinterpreted what he said. So there, there are case studies. Okay. That, that people have had a blood clot. Uh, but it, it's hard to know is that sure. what is that due to? Um, but I would agree with the overall point that if yeah. you have some elevated risk, you know, maybe you should really kind of weigh those options. Yeah. Certainly. Are there other conditions where you would maybe tell people not to do it? Yeah. Again, and this is not like, you know, it, it's not that we have evidence for it, but you know, if you have the sickle cell trait, mm -hmm. maybe, maybe that's a situation where, you know, when we apply blood flow restriction that you, we induce a hypoxic like stimulus. Yeah. Maybe that's, maybe that's a situation where maybe you, you don't, you don't do blood flow restriction, or if you do do it, you're doing it maybe in a hospital setting. Right. Um, right. And I think the, the other one that we did for a while, um, I, I'm not a physician, so I always try to, to err on the side of caution. Um, but one of the things I always heard about a lot was if you've had breast cancer or you've had, uh, lymph nodes removed, a lot of times they don't recommend that you have blood pressure taken on that side, right? Because of the, the fear of lymphedema. Uh, and that used to be part of our criteria as well, but I, I removed that after looking through the literature. It doesn't seem like that's really all that well-founded. Um, but it, it still might be something to consider if you have, if you're at risk for lymphedema, maybe that's something you, you really think about um, or you right. talk about with your, your, your physician. So right. um, good stuff. So, I mean, you kind of already answered it in terms of like the need to do it. But something that I think a lot of us wondered about, you know, when it first came out, people were saying, OK, but is this better? And then I think the argument there is, well, it doesn't need to be better. It's just an application. Right. If you're injured, there's there's certainly reasons that even if it's like close to as good or as good. Um, but I think a lot of people did wonder, what if we add it on top? And when I, I forget if Lane, Lane had mentioned a couple of years ago that there was going to be a study where they did just the lifting and then lifting and blood flow restriction and compared them. So to date, is there any evidence that it adds anything beyond just like standard lifting? There is, uh, there is some data for that. That's the the practical blood flow restriction in combination with athletes. Now those studies, they, they looked at muscle strength and they looked at kind of uh, circumference as their measure of muscle growth. So I won't discuss the circumference, um, but the, the strength they did find a little bit more. So they had, they did their normal workout and, and these were in uh, division one, my guess would be division one, double A football players. Um, so they, they did their normal training and then they added either uh, an exercise of low loads with blood flow restriction or just low loads. And there was a, a little bit of an increase over the, 
the, the group doing it without blood flow restriction, suggesting a treatment effect. Now, what I would say with that, uh, I, I think that we have to keep in mind that within a given session, the muscle can only respond so much. Mm-hmm. So th- there may be something to doing that and adding that at the end of your session, depending on how much you've already done. Right. Right. So if you've maximized, if you've done, you know, three or four sets for a muscle and then you add blood flow restriction with it, with, with the same muscle, I, I really doubt that you're going to get that much more out of it. Right. Um, you, maybe you will. I, I'd be surprised. Um, but I, I think that depending on what your program looks like, um, if you haven't done a whole lot already, maybe you maybe you could get a little bit more and um, maybe with a little bit of a, a lower stress than what you would get if you were doing, you know, the same with high load exercise. But right. um, but that's a it really yeah. comes down to your preference, really, I think. Sure. Well, something that I, I liked when I listened to you on other podcasts is I think you're very practical and you have a very, I don't want to say unbiased, but non-dogmatic viewpoint when it comes to muscle growth. And something that one of the reasons that I've definitely gravitated more towards the kind of like evidence-based crew is, is trying to talk to like, you know, professional bodybuilders, which I have. Sometimes it's just like logic seems to go out the window, at least here, because, you know, um, obviously you can't really tell my physique here, but I, I have pretty average physique for somebody who's been lifting for 15 years. And it's nice that at least in this space, we can kind of go to the evidence and not just say like, oh, well, you know, you're not jacked. So what do you know, kind of a thing. So that's at least nice. But I will say that to some degree, especially like in the the natural bodybuilding world, there's this promotion of this idea that you're just going to be able to keep making progress for like 30 years. And I'm not trying to hate on the people who really try to refine little things here and there. Maybe they get their conditioning 1% better or whatever. But I just really don't believe that like if you're doing everything properly, like after 10 years or so, I think you're pretty much done. And again, maybe some little things here and there, you do a specialization phase, you get something that's like, you know, 5% better. But for the most part, I think there should be an acceptance that you like you said there's only so much you can stimulate a muscle there's only so much you can do to grow and i think something i've said a few times on this podcast is i think better methods will get you to your end goal faster you know maybe the perfect frequency with the perfect volume and implementing different techniques will get you to your end goal in seven years rather than ten but i don't necessarily think that we're just shifting the end goal um so and i'm always open to experimenting you know i've never done blood flow restrictions so I would be open to saying, hey, let me give it a you know shot for three months. Did I get even an eighth of an inch on my arms? If I did, cool. You know, I'll take that at this point. But um, I do think there's this kind of perception in the uh, or this idea. And I don't know. If, I mean, yeah, that's, that's understand a lot of these people are selling their training and things like that. So it, it yeah. sounds good. Um, but this idea that, you know, you're not done yet. You know, just look where I am after 30 years. And it's like, well, that's great. But you were probably 95 percent there after 10 years. Yeah. And. I think there's a, a couple of different ways to think about that. I one, I completely agree with what you said, um, but I also think that if you're if you're in that world and, and you're really trying to see if your if your goal is to say I want to be as big as possible, your mindset probably should be I, th- I think I can still get keep getting bigger. Yeah. I, I, one more rep, and even <laughs> though you you know that maybe that's not the case, um, 
I do understand the idea of working under that that premise because maybe that helps keep them a little bit motivated to train. Sure, definitely. Uh, but I, I definitely agree with you that, um, and I've heard James still talk about that as well. Um, the idea of you're just going to get to that end spot. It doesn't really matter within reason what you're doing. You're going to end up at a similar place. One might just get you there a little bit uh, faster than the other. So I, I largely agree with that too. Um, but I also get the idea of thinking, well, um, what, 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 what does he know? Yeah. I'm going to keep you a little bit inspired. Um, I also think that's a lot to do with all the new, you know, everybody always changing things. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I think that, as you said, people like us, where we're not changing too much these days. Um, I'm just trying not to uh explode up to be honest right. uh, I'm, trying, I'm trying to maintain this this level of, of, of physique it's like okay this is about as much muscle as i'm going to get but i need to make sure that i i don't do what a lot of i've seen like you know when you go home and you see people you grew up with you're like wow yeah uh, right. <laughs> my gosh i gotta i gotta make i gotta make sure i i, I keep exercising yeah. um e- eating right and having to you know uh try and maintain a, a good uh healthy level of body weight um but I, I think a lot of that is to try and even maintain. Sometimes if you just do like, okay, I, I think that doing this exercise three to four sets, that's en- that's good enough. I think it, for some people, a lot of people, that's going to get very boring. Sure. Um, and to, to really, if we think that exercise is something that people should be doing for years, um, I think it's a way for them to almost ins- motivate themselves to, to be yeah. excited to go to the gym. But I, but, I, but I agree with you that at the muscle level itself, it doesn't probably matter too much. Yeah, it's funny. I, I completely agree because when I was, I don't know, 15, uh, so at that point I was maybe like two years into lifting, I was posting on a forum and I said, so what happens when you're done? Like, you know, once I have all the muscle I want, what do you do? And people are like, you know, you might not ever get there because in my mind, I wanted to be 220 pounds at 10% body fat. Yep. And I'm like 40 pounds of muscle away from that. <laughs> So um, didn't quite happen. But, you know, this idea, because I remember thinking, like, it is so much more boring to me to maintain that even if I knew that there was no better results, I would still probably kind of like bulk and cut a little bit. Not like I used to where it's like 40 pound swings or anything, but something to feel like I was like, you know, going towards a goal, even if it was arbitrary. Like, for instance, like I could, you know, the most pull ups I've done, I think, was 30 or 31. So if I, you know, do a big specialization phase and I get to the point that I did 32 and I spent months doing that, I know I didn't put on any muscle, but it's like, it's a new thing for me to work towards. And you know, Tom Venuto? I don't think so. So Tom Venuto was like probably one of the early guys who got me into the idea of like bodybuilding. He's a natural bodybuilder, looks fantastic. But I remember even like years ago, I remember thinking like this sounded odd because he was saying, oh, you know, I'm still setting PRs, but it's like, you know, he's... 40 something years old at the time, been lifting since he was a teenager. And it's like, you're not setting PRs. I mean, you technically are because you're doing an exercise you've never done. And I think that's fine. It's fun. I would rather say, I I know I'm not going to gain any muscle, but I'm going to do this new exercise and I'm going to progress each week because it's just more fun than doing, okay, I'm doing this exercise for the thousandth time and I'm doing the exact same thing. So I totally agree with what you're saying. No, it's just, it keeps it motivating. And, you know, I'm not going to tell somebody like, you know, maybe a little delusion is good for them, you know, to keep that motivation. I mean, I think it's fine at the end of the day, you know, it, it's good to stay motivated in this and have something to drive towards. Yeah, I completely agree. 
especially with the PR thing, because I I found my, my myself doing that too. It's like you haven't done this exercise um, in months, so you start doing it again, and you're like, I, the last time I did this, I only did this five times. Now I did it six. Yeah. PR. It's right. like yeah. <laughs> all right. What's up then? Whatever works. Yeah, and it's it's interesting. So I definitely resonate with what you said. I think this whole debate with the volume nowadays is is very interesting because certainly there's going to be genetic variation in, in what people respond to. And so I do think people, there are some people who respond very well to higher volume. And it's tough because, again, I don't have the best physique. So when I say things like, so I just made a post recently on Instagram that got some good attention. And basically what I said is, you know, I started dieting back in February at 205 pounds. And literally I'm doing like six sets to failure per muscle group per week. And about three weeks ago, I kind of hit a wall fatigue wise. So I was doing an early morning workout. I was just like, ah, oh, screw this. And I dropped it to two sets. So two sets for the one upper body workout. So total was five sets per week per body part. And I'm like literally almost 100% maintenance of strength, like a rep here or there. Um, I'm looking relatively good. I mean, I've maintained almost everything. And I would, I would imagine that the little strength I have lost is probably from leverages and, and things like that. So, you know, I post that and... Meanwhile, there's other people who are doing 20, 30 sets. And I just think that when you're maintaining, especially, you just don't need that much. But even when gaining, I, again, this is kind of also my preference. And I think that's a big part of it. But, you know, like, you know, DC training with Dante Trudell, um, you know, obviously like the hit guys and all that, like they generate some massive individuals, you know, Dorian Yates did low volume, obviously, you know, great genetics, steroids, all that stuff. But I just don't know if I really believe that like 30 sets like some people are doing or even 20 is going to really be that much better than like eight sets. Again, too near failure. I, I think, sure, if you're doing a bunch of sets that are far from failure, you're getting some more fatigue and everything. But um, just my opinion and my experience, and I do train people, and, and sometimes when I drop their volume quite a bit, they get better responses. So I don't know if you can weigh in at all on the whole volume thing. but Yeah, I think that I think what people want um, and it's what I always wanted. I wanted someone to say, tell me exactly how many sets I'm supposed to do. And I wanted evidence-based. It's like, well, you know, we, we can give you concepts, right? Yeah. So we know that for, for, and maybe it's a little bit different, but I, I think for strength, I don't know how much volume really plays a role in that. I think a lot of that's dictated on how heavy your sets are. Yeah. Right? I think that's way more important. And so I think that's it's that's a little bit hard to, to to dissect. With muscle growth, if you're looking at a kind of a single joint movement, uh, maybe you can get away with a, a little bit of maybe one set, two sets to failure. If you're dealing with a squat, um, maybe you need a couple more because there's a lot of muscles that have to be activated. But I would say I I would agree in general that if your goal is muscle growth needs to be a little bit more higher volume. And the question is, what what, is, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. And that's a good question. Um, you know, two sets, three sets, four sets. I think once you get over four sets in a given session for a muscle group, I think that's, I don't know how much more you're going to get out of that session. Um, so that's obviously a higher volume compared to doing one set. You're but you have people, per muscle group or per exercise for the muscle group? Um, 
I was talking about per muscle group. Um, but then you have, so sometimes you have people doing one set per exercise, but they do four exercises in that given session. So it becomes very, very hard to even to, to discuss, but I think that it goes back to the preference thing. So some people, they don't, they don't really care if it's like, if you go over four sets or five sets, maybe you get a little bit more with six sets, but um, you start to delay your recovery a little bit. Sometimes people, that's just what they want to feel. They want to feel terrible when they leave the gym. Right. So if that's what gets them going, um, okay. I, but from a, a muscle growth perspective, it, it's hard for me to think that if you're doing a couple sets, two or three sets uh, for a muscle group, and then you do two or three exercises in a, in a session, I, I, it's hard for me to think that you're not just completely maximize out that muscle's ability to, to respond. That doesn't mean that you can't do more, yeah. especially if you really like that. Some people just, that's, they really enjoy that. Yeah. Um, and I think that's, that should be figured into, you know, people's training programs. What if they, if they, some people, you know, when they leave the gym, if they feel maybe they did the most optimal protocol possible. Um, I, I put optimal in quotes because I, I I hate that term because You're nobody right. knows what it means. But if you did the, the 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 exact amount of sets to maximize your muscle growth response, my guess would be is that most people will leave the gym and go, I feel like I have a lot more in me. Yeah. Um, and some people would be like, I'm fine with that. But some people would be like, I, I want to feel just exhausted. So it's it, it, I think that bias of, of feeling like I'm doing more than everybody else, I think really kind of hinders this conversation. Yeah, um, I think it's interesting. You mean you're talking about like, oh, like one set per exercise. And actually, it was something I, I was thinking about when I, you know, in the middle of the night, actually, I woke up and I was thinking about that, this podcast and this anecdote came to my mind how years ago, I read some article, I have no idea who wrote it. And it just said, you know, bodybuilders only do one set. And I was like, what? And what this guy was explaining was, you know, he's like, you know, if you pretty much talk to any bodybuilder, and this is actually corroborated by back on like the T Nation forums, if you're ever on there, and some of these big bodybuilders were talking about how they actually do it. Dante Trudell talks about the same thing is it depends on how you kind of set, right? Because, you know, okay, you, you look at like a, you know, huge guy in the gym, he goes in there, and he does 225 for 10, then he does 275 for eight, then he does 315 for six, then he puts on 365, and he does five all-out reps. Then he does 365 again and gets four all-out reps. Did that guy do five sets or did he do two sets? You know, yeah. And the reality is he's done 225 for 10 a million times. If he's repping out 365, that's not that hard. But that guy might say, well, I go in there and I do five or six sets of bench press. And then you know, I go on incline dumbbell. And that incline dumbbell might be you know, hundreds for 10, 120s for eight. And then his work sets 150 for like six. Again, you're still working on those, quote, warm-up sets, but how many true, like, two failure sets is this guy doing? I mean, you could look at the end of that workout and say he's doing five or six real sets. Um, yeah. You know, for me, I'm counting my, like, all-out sets. Now, for me, I tend to keep my warm-ups, like, fairly easy. You know, none of them are, like, really that hard. Um, but that was just something that was pointed out, and a lot of these big guys train like that. You know, they're, there's a lot of, you know, whatever you want to call them, acclimation sets and everything like that. And... I think when we're talking about true sets to failure, it's probably lower in some of these, even these high volume guys 
than people realize, you know, as far as like the all out sets that they're doing. I think I know James Krieger talked about how he tried to do that experiment of after Brad Schoenfeld's volume study and he was doing like 30 sets per week. And I'm sure it was fine. Like you said, just because you can recover from it doesn't necessarily yeah. mean that it's it's optimal or that it's doing any more than less. And I guess my personal anecdote was that um, there was one time when I did a pull-up specialization. And I will say that I found, if I'm ever doing a, a specialization phase, I find frequency tends to be you know, my, uh, my best benefit there. So I don't know, if I were to just do 20 sets in one day, I, I don't know, I don't think that would be <laughs> very good. But you know, whether it was for growth, like an arm specialization, or whether it was strength, like I've done a few bench press, overhead press, and pull-up specializations, the frequency seems to help, and that could certainly just be a practice effect. But what was interesting was at one point in the specialization, I was doing like 30 sets a week for back. And they were all pretty close to failure. And for chest, I was kind of like recovering from an injury. So I was only doing two sets a week for chest, like total. And during that time, my chest exercises were going up as much as my back exercises, literally two versus 30 sets. And for me, both were <laughs> kind of going up equally. So right. it just, you know, it's N equals one anecdote, but I, I just think it's interesting. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So one other thing that I had heard people talk about that makes sense in practice, you know, nowadays with Mike Isertel talks a lot about these maintenance phases and um, Brian, I think Haycock or Haycock, um, back in the day with HST training, he talked about resensitization. And I think the idea makes sense. You know, you step away from a little while and then when you come back, you have this new growth, whether that's muscle memory for somebody who's been away for a long time um, or just, I don't even know necessarily mechanistically exactly what's going on. Um, but I think I've heard you, and again, we seem to be on the same page here as well, that that might result in a temporary increase in the muscle responsiveness. But do we have any evidence that that's really doing anything long-term? Yeah, that's very... That's a, we, we wrote about that in our frequency paper uh, in sports medicine. Um, so the idea being, uh, and I, I really, I think this is a really cool idea. And I think, I think it's really cool that a lot of people are messing around with it, but I'm also very skeptical that it's, mm -hmm. that, it, that it translates into real things. But the idea itself is amazing. So kind of what we were thinking about is kind of to your point, if, there's only so many sets that you can add into a given day before you just turn the muscle off, right? And then you're just delaying recovery. Mm -hmm. So the idea then is, well, let's increase the frequency. So let's distribute out some of those sets throughout the day, throughout the week, right? And then take advantage of that. Um, but there's only so many times you can do that in a week. So what happens when you're training each muscle, you know, three times a week? Do you go to four and then five? And then six, mm -hmm. at some point, you, you're, you're really kind of losing the ability to take advantage of frequency. So one of the things that we were trying to kind of, um, kind of hypothesize based on some of the, the, the available literature was, what happens if we almost just have someone stop training? So we know that if you stop training, uh, if you, if you stop training for like a month, you're going to lose a lot of your muscle, right? You're going to go pretty close to baseline pretty, pretty quickly. So with, within a couple of weeks, you're probably going to be fine. You might lose a little bit, but um, you probably have the idea being that you've resensitized your, your ability to respond. And there's some animal data that suggests that that's true. 
So in other words, you train, you've maximized your frequency. So now let's cut the frequency to zero. You're just not training. So let's say that we do, you do that for two weeks. Uh, so, and again, you're not bed rested, right? If you're right, bed right. rested, you're yeah. going to lose it very quickly, but you're ambulatory. You're just living your life. Maybe you take right. a two week vacation. Are you going to lose some muscle size? Probably, probably a little bit, but you're going to be better than you were. So the idea is, is that because you've not trained that muscle for two weeks, when you start to exercise again, your, your body has been resensitized to that anabolic stimulus. So now you will, uh, ideally be training with a resensitized system at a higher level of muscle mass. So maybe you can keep pushing that limit. Mm -hmm. Now, does that ultimately translate out to greater gains than what you would get if you were doing continuous training? Uh, right now the evidence says no. Um, and that's been out the six months. That's the paper by uh, my colleague, Dr. Abe, Takashi Abe. Um, so I think the idea itself is very cool. And you can make the argument that a lot of people will, yeah, but what if you would have studied it out to two years or three years or four years? I don't know, uh, maybe. <laughs> yeah. um, but I think it goes back to what you said before. Um, Maybe that's something you, you, you do to because you've you got to get a little bit of a deload and maybe it, it re-inspires you, re-motivates you to train. But um, does that actually translate to greater changes? I, I, I don't think so. Um, yeah. But, but you can make a case for it. And that's the thing that I think people sometimes struggle with. And I, and I struggle with this too, where it's like, is that, is is that science-based? Yes, but you but you also have to think about um, the the end point. Is that really mm -hmm. going to be different than what it would have been? So, right. I don't know. That's I think a little bit one of way to think about it, though. No, it's it's good. I think one thing that's interesting though is you know you mentioned some people say, well, why even do blood flow restriction if it's yeah. not better, right? And you know you can make an argument. Well, it's different. It could be fun. You know whatever. But sometimes it's just is it as good can be enough of a reason. And I think when it comes to, you know, desensitization or deloading or maintenance phases, whatever you want to call it, if the results show that it's not worse, that could be a reason to do it. So, you know, I think there is evidence in like humans that when people take weeks off, you know, like it's uh, I forget what the study was. I think it was six weeks on, two weeks off, something like that. And over months, the results were no different than people who just trained the entire time. To me, that's like, look that's some time off, <laughs> like yep. enjoy it, you know, have a life like, and look, I love lifting. I mean, one of my yep. favorite things is like getting up, having a good lift, getting some good food, but to have that kind of freedom to know, Hey, we literally have this evidence that like, if you take a whole week off, I mean, I used to try to have like really specialized deloads and do it exactly. Most yep. of the time I just take a week off now and it doesn't seem to matter literally at all. And I, I think, you know, people who gravitate towards me and like my training at this point, probably, you know, the people who are really extreme, they, they probably don't as much and because, you know, you're going to resonate with different people and that's fine. I think for me, it's like, you know, after I just killed myself for probably the first 12 years of doing this, lost social opportunities, put everything into it. When I backed off, I was like, oh, wow, that that really didn't matter that much. And so to know that, like, hey, I can take a week off. It's, you know, it's, it's almost just a mental relief. And sometimes, you know, well, I don't agree that a maintenance phase is priming you for more hypertrophy or anything like that, I do think it could kind of prime you mentally to say, wow, like I was burnt out and now I'm just like just chomping at the bit to get back into the gym. So um, while it might not have 
the physical benefit people think it might or hope that it does i think there is a psychological benefit that can be achieved by incorporating them yeah that's a great point um almost liberating yeah. uh i i had a, a similar thing it's like i i used to be so nervous about traveling because mm -hmm. it's like do they have a gym do they have this do they have this uh because i i again i thought i was operating under evidence-based you know and i was but i was thinking about the wrong evidence so i'm thinking about the bed rest it's like if you don't if you don't you know if, if you um stop lifting and you're just not moving you lose muscle very rapidly yeah but it's like that's quite a bit different than right. you know living your life living your life um so i i had a, a very similar um kind of awakening i i guess yeah. where it's like you take a week off and you're nervous right and you go back and you're like nothing happened right right so everything is if, if anything i'm better yeah um, I, I feel better so mm -hmm. i i found this this the, the same thing with diet it's like I when was i just about to say yeah the same thing like i don't know if you've done much with like intermittent fasting or anything like that but just the idea that I used to be six, seven meals a day. I, when I was in high school, I'd bring a giant shake. I had five minutes between classes and I would chug it in the bathroom. Like it was so anal and just to know, oh, three meals a day is like probably fine. Or, you know, if I spread my meals out over eight to 10 hours instead of like 16 hours, it's probably fine. I was just gonna make that point. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's all about what you consistently do. Yeah. Um, but no, that was the, I, that was the same thing. It's like, you have the, <laughs> I still have, a, I, I took it out of my car, but I used to have a cooler that I carry in my car. Cause it's like, mm -hmm. well, I got to eat now. I got to eat here. Everything revolved around eating. And, it, and the same thing to you. It's like, you know, you, you kind of missed out on a lot of social opportunities and, yeah. and, and maybe for some people that that's really worth it. I think for me, maybe, it, maybe it was worth it because I went through it and I realized, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not the caliber of person who is going to require this level of, of precision. Mm -hmm. um, and if anything, this is just going to take away from it's not adding to it because when I stopped doing it, but I was consistent overall, I, if anything, I got better. So That's whether that would happen. Yeah. yeah, it's such an important point because and hopefully, you know, this podcast is not just an echo chamber and I'm, I'm reaching people who this can help because what you said about like, you know, I'm not like the caliber of person that is such a critical point that I think is often missed because here's what happened. And again, this whole correlation versus causation thing, right? You will get people who are completely obsessed with it. And let's say that I had really good genetics. I, and I've said this before, I would be that douchebag guy who says that my results are because I worked harder than everybody around me because I did. I work, yeah. I, mean, I don't know anybody in person who pushed as hard as I did. And I would think, I mean, somewhat logically, look at all the work I did and look at my results. And so, you know, I say this, like, if you look at like boxing for Muhammad Ali, it was probably worth it, you know, for despite like all the brain damage and everything, it was worth it because he's a legend. But there are thousands and thousands of boxers who have brain damage who went nowhere, it probably wasn't worth it for them. Yeah. And when it comes to something like this, it's very easy if, if you're getting the results that you expect and you're just like, you, you know, you're pretty gifted then I'd probably be sitting here saying, you know what, it was worth it because now I was, you know, I was a top natural pro bodybuilder or something like that. And I did, I achieved that at 21 years old and it was worth the dedication. If you're one of those people, that's great. And, and it's hard. You won't know if you're 14, you're getting into this. You won't know yet if, if you know, how you're going to respond. But for most people, it's not going to be worth it. And it's probably going to impede on their life 
and their enjoyment of life. And the problem, I think, gets to be when you get some of those advanced people and they'll then conclude to those other people, well, if you just worked like I did, you would have these results. And that's where it's really tricky because at least like you and I have gone through it that we could say, hey, you're wrong. Like, I know I push it for 10 years, but I'll still, I mean, even to this day, if I go on a forum or Instagram or anything, I will still to this day say, well, look, you don't push this hard. Like if you did, and at some point you just have to accept that that's, that's always going to be there. You know, I try not to let it frustrate me because it's like, you know, I'm not going to talk with somebody I don't know online and say, no, you don't know how hard I push, you know, it's just a waste of time. But, but that will always be there. Well, they'll, they'll say, you know, how can you say that it doesn't work? Look how hard this person's trying. And some some of it you just have to accept, but I, I think it's important that you should push as hard as you want and that you feel is necessary to reach your goals, but don't feel like you've failed if you then try, you know, backing off a little bit because as you have experienced, as I've experienced, um, it really can impede your life enjoyment. And I think it's important to realize that most of your results are going to come from the basics and consistency over time. Yeah, and I think that if... I think a lot of people feel this, not only for training and diet, but, you know, back when I was really, really trying to push, push myself, uh, you know, you start to get to where the, the mindset of, I, I need to do everything, everything I can. And if, you know, if, if, if you're almost terrified to go, well, if I pull back a little bit, maybe that's going to be the, that's going to give somebody else the edge. Yeah. And. I think it just depends on, on what arena, you know, that you're operating in. Um, yeah. And I, I completely agree. Yeah, yeah, it is fascinating. It's actually, um, you know, this extends into all, like you said, like a lot of areas of life. I think when we look at physical traits, it's very easy to see the genetics in it, like sports and everything like that. Um, and we don't have to get into this much because it's definitely controversial. But when you look at like um, like intelligence research and things like that, it is interesting to see you know, the people who just pick things up right away and, you know, how much of that is genetics versus environmental, you know, it, it's hard to say, but it is really interesting when you have like, you know, and I mean, you have a PhD, you know, for me going through well, most of my schooling, I wouldn't say I was effortlessly at the top of my class, definitely not. But looking back, I, I can see, wow, things came to me a lot more easily than for some people. So maybe like that was my, you know, genetic advantage versus, you know, being like the best athlete or something like that. But I think it can extend to a lot of areas in life where, you know, again, I would never tell somebody like not go after a goal. Um, but that liberation that like there is a limit to certain things and the acceptance and then kind of finding your path and really delving into that as best you can. Yeah. And I think, I think it's, I think I've been very fortunate to be honest, where I, I've been around people who are very, very, very good, but also very kind. Mm-hmm. So like when you're, when you're, when you see like, like in, in wrestling, it's like we, we, tr- I, I came from a very good wrestling high school and we would travel the country. And when you, when you wrestle in the state, you see very good people. When you wrestle across the country, you start to go, wow, there are, <laughs> yeah. there are levels to this. Yeah. Same thing with bodybuilding and powerlifting. I've been fortunate to be around men and women who are just have incredible physiques and have incredible strength. And it's like that, that way, you know, what strong is. And yeah. you have people who come up to me sometimes and be like, wow, it's a really good deadlift, man. It's like really appreciate it. Um, but in my mind, it's like you I, I, I appreciate that you noticed that it made me feel good. But it's like I obviously I wouldn't say this to somebody trying to give you a compliment, but it's sure. like 
there are people who are so strong. Like yeah. what I do right here is wouldn't even wouldn't even get me into the uh, wouldn't even rank me. Yeah, you know, it's just incredible. So it's like I think sometimes when you see people like that, and when you've been around people, and you're like, okay. That's that's what you look yeah. like, or that's, it's like that's not what I look like, and I'm doing the same thing you are. So maybe maybe I can spread some of my interest to other things. I um, think the only reason it's it's a great thing to recognize, and it's almost I think the frustration only comes when you have the common belief that you don't have that because you didn't work hard enough. Because yeah. and like again, that's just it's always going to be frustrating. But once you get past that you like you were saying there's almost this appreciation for seeing the elite in different areas and like like i have for the guy who has an iq of 170 just like the guy who's got like you know top powerlifting record i can just kind of appreciate that like wow this is like a true freak you know in a good way and it's it's just again it's an appreciation for it. it's like wow this person is so good at what they do you know um i played racquetball a little bit when i was in dental school you know just for fun i, I actually really enjoyed it but I got to play with the, he was ranked ninth in the world. And this guy was like so good, <laughs> he, you know, not, not, not an overly impressive physique, but he was so good at his sport. It was just like amazing to be able to play with somebody like that. Um, and again, just that appreciation for like the true elite in their specific area. And I think to your, to your point too, is that you go through some, there's some phases, maybe, maybe not everybody, maybe it's just, uh, Maybe it was just me who was insecure, but I feel like this this captures a lot of people. You know, when you are training in your gym, right? Uh, maybe at the maybe for a while you're the you're the top person, mm-hmm. right? You're the biggest, you're the strongest. But then you see somebody come in and they start getting bigger than you, stronger than you, very quickly. Your first thought is, you know, I bet that person's on drugs. Yeah. And there's no way they could be better than me. Right, you know, right. I, I train <laughs> I train incredibly hard, but I think that. For many people, they come to the realization that there are just some people who I, I can work very, very hard, and they also work very, very hard, but they're just better than me. Yeah. And that's all it is. They're, they're, their physique is just better. They're just stronger. They're just smarter. That, that's just how it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes it just it takes a long time to get to that point where you're like, no, they, they have that because of this. Right. It's like. They may have it for a variety of reasons. The, the, the point is, is that they're still better than you are. Yeah, right. Um, but I think that's, as a kid who's trying to train hard, that's hard to take sometimes. Sure, definitely, uh, definitely. Part of its maturity. Yeah. So um, last topic I, I wanted to wrap up with, which is one that I know is definitely controversial and we're still trying to find the evidence for it, is the relationship between strength and size. And I think for a while it was kind of accepted that to get stronger – you got to get bigger and vice versa. Um, we certainly see examples of people who get stronger without getting bigger. And I think to a lot of us, that makes sense. You know, there's a huge neurological aspect to strength. Um, there's, you know, just that practice effect. The other way, you know, people could argue, like, does it matter? Because ultimately, for the most part, we're gaining. If you're gaining size, you're almost always, at least, in the, you know, when we actually look at the real world, you're gaining strength. Um but I, I think it matters to understand the mechanisms behind it. You know, I mean, there's plenty of things that we, we want to understand why, even if it doesn't necessarily change what we're doing. So for me personally, when I'm training somebody, I do still say like, okay, we're trying to get you as big as possible. Great. Then, you know, your pull-ups, you can do, you know, five pull-ups with body weight, 
pretty much can guarantee that by the time you get to eight pull-ups with 75 pounds attached to your waist, you're going to have a bigger back. You know, when you can, you know, increase your bench press from 135 for five to 225 for 10, you're going to have a bigger chest. And I think that is an effective way to go about the training to gain size. But I am interested to hear your thoughts on why you might not necessarily believe that the increase in muscle size is responsible for the increase in strength. Yeah, and I think you framed it perfectly. Uh, when we're discussing the, uh, this kind of topic, we're talking about changes, right, in adults who lift weights. So I think everybody would agree that if you look at – this is true in untrained individuals. Um, if you take just um, – a group of people um, and you correlate their muscle size with their strength, people who are bigger tend to be stronger, whether they lifted weights before or not. So the, the question that we're interested in is, does that happen when you start lifting weights? We know that muscle growth often increases, but does that actually contribute to changes in strength? And uh, we, we kind of came across this because obviously I, I study uh, have studied a lot of low load exercise um, and we compare it to high load exercise and there was just a couple times where you start to look at this and you go you know what I feel like I'm making a lot of excuses here uh, mm -hmm. for low load exercise because when we look at low load exercise with blood flow restriction or without blood flow restriction if you're if you're going to failure we see changes in muscle size that are basically equivalent to high load exercise, right? So in other words, um, the muscle growth changes the same, but if we were to look at strength in that exercise of which you trained, which is what most people are interested in, it's not even close. Yeah. So low load increases strength. No, I think people agree with that, but usually not to the same extent as those lifting very heavy. And I think that, Pragmatically, most people agree with that. People who are interested in powerlifting, they don't do low load training. And if they do, they're not going to win. Um, they, they spend at least some time lifting heavy weights. So I think that early on in, 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 in my career, I, I, I worked under the paradigm that a lot of people work under, that changes in muscle size do contribute. So if there is a change in muscle size, then it must have contributed, right? And but there was there started to be a lot of studies from our own lab where it's like muscle growth is the same, strength is different, mm -hmm. and you could argue well that's because of the neural aspect, etc. But I, I think some we were sitting around with my students and they're like, I'm like, well, we know that muscle growth contributes, and it's kind of like, but it seems like there's a lot of times where this is not lining up. Yeah, and I, I. I started to kind of have an, a, a come to Jesus me, uh, moment with myself where it's like, wow, maybe this, maybe this isn't true. All right. So it's like, well, let's look at the, let's look at the evidence because if you look at any textbook, um, especially recently from the 1980s on almost all the textbooks say that muscle growth contributes to strength. Right. Um, and what we, what we found when we did that is, we went and we looked at what 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 references do those textbooks cite, and really what they cite is usually one of three things. There's a early paper by Ikai and Fukunaga, the first paper that, to my knowledge, that's ever documented a change in muscle size. 
they talked about the change in muscle size being a contributory factor for strength. That had five participants, right? And then the, the, the one that's most cited is more tying to Vries. Another five participants, right? The other one is sale paper, which is a review paper that's largely based on those two studies, which is five study, five people in each study. Now, importantly, more tying to Vries is the study that's often cited as the importance of muscle growth, where they go after the first, you know, three to four weeks, muscle growth becomes a dominant factor in strength gain. Mm -hmm. I think we all have heard this narrative. The issue is, is that that study didn't measure muscle growth um, at all. Um, they looked at, they inferred muscle growth off changes in EMG amplitude, which it potentially is problematic. Um, but so we started to look at that and go, okay, maybe this, doesn't have a lot of good evidence behind it. In other words, the exercise-induced change. We understand why people think it. It makes sense, right? There's this relationship at baseline. It would make sense that if you gain more muscle, you probably get stronger. Uh, but I don't. I would argue that there's not a lot of evidence that that's the case. And we've done studies where we try and manipulate the amount of muscle growth that an individual sees to see what impact that has on strength. So we have one group that we designed to increase muscle size and strength. We have another group designed to minimize growth and increase strength. And then we have a non-exercise control. This is 150 participants. And we've done this same study three times now. And what we found is, is that the group that is designed to, and we, this is a very simple movement, so there's not a big silk component. The group that saw muscle growth also saw muscle strength. That, that's what everybody sees. But the right. group that saw basically no muscle growth relative to a control saw the same amount of muscle strength. Mm. So in our mind, that, that provides some evidence that muscle growth might not be that contributory for strength because both groups saw the same, the, an equivalent amount of strength, but different muscle growth, right? Over what now, time period? Uh, th this was, we've done it, from six weeks to eight weeks. So about the same time frame as more time to Vries, but yeah, we don't know what that looks like long-term, but I think the, uh, I think with that study, given that we documented muscle growth, it should have contributed something. Now there are, that, that, that study design is not perfect. That study design also has its own limitations because we're manipulating growth via study design. Uh, but even when we look at the, the, the groups, uh, we have an analysis under review right now. We also don't find that it mediates it. So the, the, the bottom line is, and, and this is what I always say, is if people have a lot of criticisms of those studies that we've done, um, and quite often a lot of the criticisms are valid. There's no question. The duration of it, right? We use ultrasound, not MRI, even though we have documentation that they give comparable results. Uh, we, we used uh, different levels of intensity to, to, to alter the muscle growth. So those are all really um, good criticisms. So my response to that is in that situation where, okay, so let's pretend like our studies were never done. Let's pretend, let's just take them off the table. Now, what, what evidence do we have? 
that the that the change in one contributes to the change in the other. We don't really have any good evidence. Mm -hmm. And and what what I've always we had a really nice kind of point counterpoint with uh, uh, Chris Tabor. Um, he's a a really good researcher. I think he's at Sacred Heart University. Um, so we had a, a what, what I felt was a very good, respectful kind of back and forth uh, in sports medicine, and kind of what I put forth to them because their evidence was a lot of correlations, uh, which is okay. But I think kind of my perspective is if we were to, to flip the story, so let's say that everybody thought that muscle growth did not contribute to muscle strength. Everybody thought like I thought, okay? And that's in all the textbooks. And it's up to them to convince you otherwise with all the evidence that they provide. Would, would, would any of that convince you? Would a correlation would that convince you that this is really good evidence mm -hmm. that the change in one contributes to the change in the other? My guess would be probably not. So I think sometimes it helps to flip the conversation. Yeah. So if, if you really think that there's really good evidence for it, then it should be overwhelmingly convincing. So, so that's I, yeah, I, I think it, it's very interesting. Obviously, you know, there's the whole like if I try to step back from my own preconceived notions, right, because obviously the whole argument of like, but, you know, the biggest people are the strongest and, and all that stuff. If you take it to the extreme and you say, OK, there's not really much of any correlation, I suppose the argument is just that, like, a lot of the things that we do that increase size also increase strength, perhaps to the point that we can't effectively separate them entirely. You're talking about some studies, like, again, we obviously know people can gain strength without the size. Do you think, then, there would be some mechanism by which one, and there's obviously no reason anybody would want to do this, but if we're just talking about, like, for proof of concept here, to maximize size without an increase in strength. For example, I started with like 12 inch arms, okay? They're now like 16 and a half inches. Do you think there's any actual way that I could have gotten there without getting stronger? Yeah, we've, we've done that. Um, so if you train at a low enough intensity, mm -hmm. uh, and we did this in the lower body, it was a little bit different in the upper body, uh, not to the same magnitude. Uh, but in the lower body, uh, we produced similar changes in muscle size as high load exercise. But we were doing it at 15% 1RM, up to 90 repetitions. So when you compare that muscle growth to high load exercise, it's not different. Probably the same. But the strength didn't change at all. How in, do you in the, strength? The 1RM. In the, in the movement in which they were exercising. Mm -hmm. So we weren't using something that, the, that they weren't training. That, to me... That provides information, but not usually the information that people are interested in. Yeah. So I, I'm training on this lift to get stronger in this lift. They got bigger doing this lift, but did not get stronger. Hilo did. So. But they probably, I mean, I don't know. I would think that they perhaps got stronger in higher rep ranges. Or did they, did you measure that at all? Um, we didn't, we, we have endurance. But I, I, I wouldn't call that uh, strength. Okay. So you're really, when we're talking this whole strength versus size correlation, you're talking specific, like to me, again, maybe this is the, my colloquial definition of it versus maybe what's like done in research. When I think, you know, my 20 rep max went up by 30 pounds, 
I would consider that getting stronger, even though, you know, I'm not, because I don't really test my Wonder Max almost ever anymore. So I would consider that stronger. And I, and I think yeah. most people would consider that stronger. Yeah, we're talking about maximal strength. But I think what you're describing is kind of what our point is, that there's a major specificity component to this. Mm-hmm. So, so for me, I don't think that you should just throw out muscle growth, right? But I think that you should be, I think it gives us some clues. So everybody agrees that specificity is very important. So from my perspective, why aren't we looking at mechanisms that can explain that specificity component? Mm-hmm. Muscle growth can't do that. And one of the things that you said earlier was, which I thought was uh, a good point is, is that when you train normally, right, you're going to often see muscle growth and strength. So what's the point? Well, I think the point is, is that uh, there are a lot of people who are interested in maximal strength, mm-hmm. who are doing hypertrophy work in an effort to increase that maximal strength. So for me, it's like we know that when you're doing high amounts of volume or higher volume to induce muscle growth, as we talked about, right, that that oftentimes requires a little bit more recovery. So if I was giving, you know, there's a there's a lot of coaches who say, okay, I, I see what you're saying. But I still have a hunch that if I make a muscle bigger, it's going to increase strength. Okay. Um, I would work with that. But one of the, what I would say is, is that maybe you can, you can give a little bit less time to muscle growth mm-hmm. and maybe a little bit more time to maximal strength or maybe keep the same amount for maximal strength, cut back muscle growth, and add to a little bit more recovery. So I think, I think, I think that, that, that definitely makes sense. And, and again, that's why I say – you know, what are the practical recommendations versus mechanistic? I don't think there's any problem with, because sometimes, and one of the reasons I, I think I am definitely willing to, you know, talk about that sort of thing is because back in my forum days when I was a teenager, it was actually very frustrating because I would go on these forums and I've always wanted to like delve into the reasons why. And I would come up with like things like I remember one specifically was to say, you know, if I'm dieting, should I maybe not focus on strength gains because it would make more sense to make the strength gains win a calorie surplus. So am I wasting those strength gains or something like that? Now, that doesn't really matter. Either way, I'm going to try my hardest in the gym. But as a fif- even as a 15-year-old kid, I wanted to know, could that make sense? And of course, standard kind of jock bodybuilders, whatever, were like, you're OCD. Why are you thinking about that? Like, who cares? Just go in the gym and lift. And I always found that frustrating because it's like, to me, this is interesting. I want to, you know, I want to know these mechanisms. And again, I... I very grateful for this evidence-based community where we can have these conversations and it's not always just just go to the gym and lift you know so i'm totally on board with saying regardless of the practical recommendations let's look at the mechanisms um yeah. but i i'm wondering you know you said you'd show that in the lab but you know with my example i'm not talking about you know eight weeks or something and of course we can't do a 10-year study on this but i guess i'm just wondering and you, you have to speculate here, obviously, because we don't have the research. But do you really believe that in, like that example of a literally 12-inch arm to a 16-and-a-half-inch arm over years could be done without increasing one's one-rep max curl, for instance? In other words, getting getting bigger without strength? Getting maximally bigger without strength over no. long periods of time. Yeah. Well, I think that... Um... No, I think at some point you'd probably get stronger. You're going to do enough to get stronger. Okay. Um, 
But I think that when we're talking about this time frame, so I think one of the criticisms always is, is that you're studying this over a short duration. But for me, it's like, that, that's true, but that's the same durations that have been used to, to establish the story in the first place. Right. So if it's long enough to establish it, it should be long enough to question it. So I, I, I think it's reasonable. I think that, I think that sometimes people go, they want to either be in one camp or the other, um, and it's like, there's no evidence. It's stupid if you add in muscle growth. It's like, I, I think it, I think it's difficult for a lot of people because it makes a lot of sense, especially mm-hmm. because um, of how many uh, of the baseline relationship. But sometimes, and I, I sit and I think about this a lot. It's like, why does it make sense though? Does it make sense for good reasons? Or does it make sense just because we've always talked about it making sense? Right. Um, because if you look at the older textbooks, they were very, very skeptical um, that muscle growth was a mechanism. So it, it wasn't until more time to Vries, Ikai and Fukunaga that the textbook narrative changed completely. And uh, me and my student, former student, he's now a professor at uh, South Florida, uh, Sam Buckner, we went to the library and we got textbooks from every decade all the way up to the 30s. And we, because yeah. we, were, we were very interested in, man, why do people, why did I think this? And why do people think this? And if you look at the textbooks from the 1930s up until about the 1970s, all of them are very skeptical. And then 1980s on, those two studies really did do a lot to change the narrative. Now, part of that reason, to be fair, is we didn't have the technology to really quantify changes in muscle size. Right. So that's that's certainly part of the skepticism is that they they didn't have good ways to measure it. but I, I think that brings us to the next point. If you look at you, all of your listeners have done this. If you read a paper, especially in our field, um, and I've done it myself, here's how we determine the importance. If you have a group that lifts weights and they, and they see increases in strength but no change in muscle size, neural. If they see changes in muscle size and strength, neural and hypertrophy. Mm-hmm. So the, the mere fact that we could detect the, the change dictated its importance. That's a problem because you're saying that just because you can measure it, that it must have contributed to this something completely different. So I think that's where we're at right now and trying to figure out where it is. But yeah, to your point, if you're a coach and you think that I would never tell a coach to go, you know what? You think that muscle growth is important. I think you should, I think you're an idiot for including it. (laughs) You know, you should do what you think is best for your athlete. But what I would say is, is that, it's the same thing I do with blood flow restriction. When I talk to clinicians, I'm not a clinician. What I can tell you is that the evidence points to this. Now use your experience um, based on my recommendations to mold it to your client with your clinical expertise. Same thing with a strength coach. Yeah, it seems like specificity is a big thing. Muscle growth doesn't seem to be contributing to that. So if you want to still include it, maybe you make it less of an emphasis. That's it. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's uh, it's it's actually a very interesting topic to me. Again, as somebody who just likes to delve into mechanisms, I think practically, like almost everybody who comes to me for training, they're interested in both. And and so I don't yep. I don't know if it would change what I do, but again, I'm just I think one of the few people who you know a lot of people in this space are like this, but, but most people don't care. Like you know, the average person <laughs> doesn't really yep. care. Um, but I I think it's definitely interesting, like you were saying, I, and to argue against myself, obviously these examples where I would say, oh, do you think you can get, you know, 12 to 
16 and a half inch arms without any strength gains? Or, oh, do you think you can get from a 135 to a 315 bench without any size gains? That's, again, it's not, that's not what you're saying. You know, that's just taking it to the extreme. My, if somebody were actually asking me that question, I would say, no, I, I don't believe that you could do that without getting any stronger. Or I don't think you could get to a 315 bench without getting any bigger. I, I guess my reason just being that I've never seen anything like that in my life. <laughs> but, but I still think these mechanisms are important. It's very interesting. And I, and I do see where you're coming from, that there is a clear distinction. And we can get muscle growth without strength. We can get strength without muscle growth. We've seen both of those in studies. So um, it, it is interesting, for sure. At, at, at best, the, the, those who would argue for muscle growth would acknowledge that there is hardly any evidence behind that claim. Mm-hmm. Hardly any experimental evidence. I think they would all agree with that. Um, but I, I would also agree that I, 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 I see the logic behind doing it. For me, I've just got to the point where it's like, if it is contributing, I don't think it's very much. Yeah. But yeah. I, I, I could see. But and to your point, most people, like myself included, for a long time, I was interested in both. It's like, do you, what do you want to be, bigger or stronger? I want to be both. Yeah. Right. right. So. Um, but I think that for those who only care about muscle growth, do you need to be lifting super heavy? Doesn't seem to be, um, unless you want to maybe mix that up. If you want to, if you care about maximal strength, do you need to be doing a lot of volume work to try to get muscle growth? Doesn't seem to be, uh, but it doesn't mean you can't, uh, but it doesn't seem like that's going to be adding too much more to what you're going to get just from lifting heavy. Totally. All right, man. Well, this was a very enjoyable conversation. Uh, I'm really glad we got to do this. So where can people find more of your work? Um, you can follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter, at uh, JP Lenicky. Um, it's the same handle for Instagram. Uh, as I, I, I always tell people, Twitter is the best way to communicate. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll post stuff on Instagram, but I really struggle. I, yeah. I, I'm a computer guy. Um, not a computer guy, meaning that I'm good with computers, but I, I don't, I don't, the phone thing I struggle with. Um, so I like to be able to type out on, on, on Twitter. So I'm much, it's much easier for me to respond, uh, on Twitter, but that's where I I usually post, uh, a lot of our, our newest work. Uh, I'm on Facebook, but most of the messages I, I, I don't respond to. Um, not because I'm a, I don't think I'm not because I'm not a nice person. Um, it's just easier to just post it on, on Twitter and then just respond. Um, right, right. But yeah, and that's where I post a lot of stuff. And like I always say, um, I'm very, I'm, I'm very fortunate, um, especially now with the whole lockdowns and quarantines. I have a really good group of students, so um, they really uh, helped evolve and help develop a lot of these ideas. So I get to to talk to great people like yourself, but a lot of the hard work comes from from them. So I'm I'm very I feel very fortunate. I have a good laboratory, so um, I, I'm, that's where I share a lot of our work is on social media. Awesome, and I will put a link to your Twitter in the show notes below. Thanks Excellent. again. Yeah, thanks for having me.